Will you turn with me now in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. Our verses will be 1 through 6. I'm going to ask you to stand now for the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word. Four, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. You may be seated. I'm sure you're aware of this, but uh, over the last couple of decades... Obviously here in America, but I think it's not limited to our country either. Preaching has undergone a complete makeover. And as a result of that, it's, well, not very much now like it used to be. And part of the reason why it looks and sounds so different is because uh, the advocates of the new model of contemporary preaching are persuading us that people are just different now. People are just different. They argue that in the um, aftermath of the post-1960s countercultural revolution, people are secular. Because they're secular, they don't know Christian doctrine, they don't know the old Bible stories, and they either don't know or don't share the biblical ethic and morality of Scripture. So those people, when they hear the Word, don't have the tools to evaluate or hear it like previous generations did. That by itself calls for a shift in the model. And then there's a second argument which seems to underpin that, is not only have we gone through a cultural revolution, that wouldn't be new or unique in history, it's happened time and again, but, but they'll say there's something new that's happened that absolutely demands a new model. And that's something new is your cell phone. That's something new is digital imagery surrounding us and the very mediums that we interface with, computers, television, phones, social media platforms, and the like. And the argument runs basically this, that the whole way people experience here and process verbal communication is so radically and entirely different that preaching has to change. And so the new model advocates and if I were to name them, you would know many of them because they lead some of the most prominent and largest megachurches in our country. They say, everything needs to change. But if you could boil down their basic proposal, it's this. Two things need to change. Number one, the manner of the preacher, and secondly, the message. The manner of the preacher and the message. So the preacher uh, needs to provide comic relief. Basically, the way you reach new audiences is by being comical. Because being comical makes truth palatable, so people will be disarmed and receive it. And they'll also be made comfortable. The cardinal sin of our era is to make people feel uncomfortable when they come to church by the things that they hear. And the other thing about the manner of the new model preaching is the preacher should be likable. 
After all, who wants to listen to somebody who's unlikable? That's the manner. And what's the message? Well, basically, as one uh, contemporary megachurch pastor says, the best way to get sermons is go down to Barnes & Noble. If any of you have seen one recently, <laughs> I don't think there's too many around anymore. Go to the self-help section and see what the books are being written about. You see, make the sermons just all about what's practical. <coughs> Change the message. Eliminate all this offensive stuff that Scripture talks about and instead highlight the points of Scripture which seem to connect to the practical concerns of people today. So if you do both of those things, you'll be right in step with the contemporary model, funny preaching, likable preachers, and practical messages. That's the new model. Now, by my giving you a brief tutorial on the new model of contemporary preaching, I've already committed a great faux pas. Because the reality is, according to the new model, you don't talk about theories of preaching because that's boring. Not only is it boring, it's not funny, and it's not relevant, or seemingly so. I was thinking about all that when I turned to our text this morning and stumbled over the initial words of verse 1. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you wasn't in vain. Guess what? That's about manner of preaching. That is the Apostle Paul reminding the Thessalonians about the manner, style, and substance of his preaching. And the whole reason why he comes to them, reminding them of this, is for a single, highly relevant and practical purpose, that they would be confirmed in their faith. And Paul says the way to be confirmed in faith <coughs> is to sit under faithful preaching. Paul's going to describe that faithful preaching and ministry in the next 12 verses here in chapter 2, and there's a very good reason for it. It's because it's been undermined by opponents in Thessalonica. So one of the things that he wants to do to bring assurance and confirmation of faith to the people of God is to remind them of the basis of their confirmation in faith, and that is that the apostle and his ministry partners were faithful to Christ in the way they preached the word. And there are two things which really seem to stand out here as the apostle reminds them of his model and manner of ministry. Boldness. Boldness and purity and motive. Boldness and purity and motive. So let's take those points and unfold them now. We begin with the notion of faithful preaching being bold preaching. And we start simply by taking a second to put our text in its context. And the beginning point of that is you guessed it, the very word that I accented when I began our reading of the text this morning in verse 1, for. You see, that for tells us the Apostle Paul is connecting what follows to what has just preceded. Now, if your Bible's open, it should be. Just look back to verse 9, and you can see precisely what the Apostle is connecting back to, where he says in verse 9, "...they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had among you." There he is referring unmistakably and undoubtedly to his prior ministry among them. Particularly there, he speaks of its fruitfulness. They turned um, from idols to God. But, but what he's doing is reminding them of his manner and style of ministry. And of course, that simply picks up from where he had been in verse 5 when he first introduced the notion of manner and style and substance of ministry. You see it for yourself in verse 5 towards the end. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Notice again, he is appealing to himself, his colleagues, in their manner and style and substance of ministry. 
Now, if you look to the beginning of your verse there in verse 5, you'll notice once again that it has that conjunction for, right? Which tells us that what is in verse 5 stands as the grounds and explanation for something he's just said. And what has he just said in verse 4? We know, brethren, his choice of you, his election. Remember, we said this already many times before, but repetition is good for all of us. The apostle has declared unto them his certainty of their election by God. And he leads them by the hand, as it were, uh, to help discern it for themselves. And one of the basis for their assurance is the Apostle Paul's manner of ministry, as he says in verse 5, as you know what kind of men we prove to be. He picks that up again in verse 9. They themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. And now come into verse 1 of chapter 2, where Paul finally picks up that thread, and he really begins to expound upon it. And he references his ministry again. You know, brethren, our coming to you was not in vain. So what you see here, people of God, contrary to the new model of contemporary preaching, getting into such trivial things as the manner, style, substance of preaching isn't just a handful of dry dust. It's completely relevant and applicable to you this morning because the apostle says this is how you become confirmed in faith. By knowing what true preaching is and sitting under faithful preaching. And the first element of it all now is boldness. And part of what tells the story of boldness is the context in which it occurred. And there's two contexts the apostle lays hold of here. Number one, prayer mistreatment. And secondly, the context of preaching in the face of great opposition. But let's think about this prior mistreatment. And you can see uh, that the whole way the Apostle Paul fashions his statement here in verse 2, that the reference to the mistreatment <clears throat> characterizes and qualifies the context of the boldness of his preaching. And it makes it really stand out with greater sharpness. Why is it so remarkable that he preached in boldness? Well, he says because they already suffered and had been mistreated. They had already suffered and been mistreated. And so we think about those terms. Suffered. A suffered is built on a word which is the same term that the apostles like to use to describe the sufferings and death of Christ on the cross. Pasco. If you look throughout the Gospels and if you look throughout Acts, the term which this is built on is a favorite term to describe the intensity and the gravity and the weight and the quality of Christ's sufferings. And here Paul uses it of him. He reminds them of his sufferings. The other thing that he speaks of here is being mistreated. It's to uh, not just harm physically, it is to insult. And of course this is a connection back into the context of this all, which is Acts 16, and his being beaten with rods by the magistrate. As a Roman citizen, the Apostle Paul was entitled to treatment that was better than that. Flogging, flogging was punishment for slaves and non-citizens. And so it was undignified the way he was treated. He was reduced to the lowest common denominator of society. And the apostle said, my social class demanded better treatment than that. So he suffered and he was mistreated. Now think about the context of all of that. That was back in Philippi. And, and, and you'll remember what got him into trouble. That's what's so directly relevant to what he says here about bold preaching. You remember why he was in Philippi, right? We studied it out in our sermons of the book of Acts. He was in Troas, not knowing where the Lord was leading him on this second missionary journey. And that 
that men from Macedon uh, showed up in that vision and with all of his resources and all of his might and with all of his rhetorical skill, he pleaded with the apostle to come preach to them. And so the apostle followed the Lord's leading in faith and he went to Philippi and he began to preach the word. And the result of it all was a public, shameful, painful humiliation. And not only was he flogged and beaten to an inch of his life, he was thrown into, as Acts 16.24 says, to the inner portion of the jail, which means the depths and the bowels of the prison, which was the darkest, dankest, stinkiest, smelliest, most awful place reserved for the worst offender. Now, where was the next place he went to preach after Philippi? You'll remember it was Thessalonica. See, so he's bounced out of town for preaching the word. And what does he do when he shows up to Thessalonica? Well, if he was following the new model, he would say, well, preaching to a secular pagan society, maybe I should do things differently. Maybe I should not major the heavy stuff so much. Maybe I should uh, tune it, dial it back just a bit. Maybe bring out some of my good comedy, uh, comic relief. Maybe maybe I try to be a little more likable. Maybe I'll be more practical in my messaging. No, what the Apostle Paul says is, when he came to Thessalonica, he said, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. Boldness. Inseparably connected to the preaching of the gospel. Boldness. Notice the other context here of this preaching as you can see it for yourself now in verse 2 we spoke to you the gospel of God in the midst of much opposition that word amid says he was right in that pot of boiling water he wasn't standing outside of it he was right in the midst of the circumstances he was in the fray as we would say And that set of circumstances was one of great opposition. Do you know that the word there for opposition is agon? Agon. And this is one of those Greek terms which speaks of just intensity, of great uh, trial and difficulty and pain. In fact, one of the favorite uses of this term is to describe the exertion of the athletes in the great Greek games giving every last drop of sweat to win. See, that's uh, uh, the intense word that he reaches for to describe that set of circumstances when he preached with boldness. And I think we can put our hands on something of what it felt like. Because Luke tells us about it. Remember Acts 17, we we covered it long ago, but, you know, um, we're told that after a season of preaching in Thessalonica, that the unbelieving Jews went to stir up a bunch of criminals uh, from the marketplace, a bunch of gangsters and lowlifes from the marketplace, and and they caused a citywide upheaval. So much so that they, they got the attention of the magistrates and they demanded punishment for the Apostle Paul. That is the kind of hostility that was this context of opposition which Paul preached in. And the fact of the matter is what the Apostle Paul says is he didn't try to do things differently. He maintained the integrity of his style and his manner. And so we see what it was here, bold speech. Now we're into the the thing he really wants to highlight here about the faithful preaching, as he says in verse 2, bold. 
Now, there's something that's very interesting as this thought unfolds is uh, you see for yourselves in verse 1, you yourselves know. Notice that repetition. You, you don't need yourselves after that. That's clear enough already. But what the translation is telling us is that he's highlighting and making emphatic his appeal to their personal knowledge. It's not something you've read about. It's not something that was whispered into their ear or became the the fodder of gossip at the local coffee shop. No, what the Apostle Paul says, you yourselves know, you are witnesses, you are a part of it. And obviously what he's referring to is his preaching ministry. And the first thing that he says about his preaching ministry is that it wasn't vain. Now, isn't that a strange word to use? It wasn't vain. And the word literally means empty. You know, some people say, well, that probably means it wasn't it wasn't fruitless. Maybe. It's likely, however, there's something else in view. Think of hot air. Hot air. It's a metaphor that we use in English to describe people who are just making it up. And probably what he's doing here, and some has argued, that that he's got his sights set upon the soapbox philosophers who, uh, instead of sitting at Starbucks, went to the town square in the ancient world. And every single major metropolitan city of the Roman Empire had these charlatans out there, and they set up their soapbox, and they put out a bucket for change, and they held forth their windy nothings to audiences who were captivated by their bloviating words. And they made their money that way. They had mastered the canons and styles of rhetoric. They knew how to shape their messages and intonations and sounds and deliveries to the audiences. And they played to them. And the result was they made their money that way. I think that's what Paul has in view here when he speaks of, you know, our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't this bloviating mess of hot air. It wasn't a bunch of windy nothings. Notice that strong but at the beginning of verse 2. Signaling contrast. He's saying, our preaching wasn't like this. It wasn't empty, useless, lifeless, insipid hot air. It was what? We had the boldness of God. Now that's an important word because... um, This is the word that the Greeks like to use to talk about political speech. This is the kind of uh, manner of speaking which is of the essence of democracy where people can speak forthrightly and boldly and openly without fear of censure. It's, It's full of candor, it's honest, it's truth, it's weighty, it's substantive. That's what he's talking about. It's a favorite term used in the New Testament to describe the preaching of the apostles. I don't need to go over the text, but there's so many of them where we read about how maybe it was the apostle or Barnabas or somebody else was speaking the word with boldness. It means that there was a truth in their message. There was gravity to what they said. There was candor. There was openness. There was frankness. There was no shrinking back. There was no holding back. It was clear, unvarnished, powerful proclamation of the truth. And I want you to notice the source of that kind of preaching here. He said, we had the boldness in our God. We had the boldness in our God, which points to the source. This is where they were uh, finding their power and their enablement to speak with this great candor. By the way, think of it. The, the audiences that they're speaking to are not gentle, fair-minded, sympathetic audiences. These are pagans. 
These are people who are in every bit as bad a position as people are today, perhaps even worse, because we say today that on the new model, we can't refer to biblical doctrines or stories or biblical morality or ethics because no one knows it. I doubt that. Our English language is full of um, sayings and aphorisms that are from the Bible. We can't separate many of them, even for our own language. But, but if we don't know today about those things, how much more didn't people who grew up in a context of paganism hear even so much as a whisper of biblical doctrine? They knew nothing of it. They weren't sympathetic to Paul. We know that from the opposition he speaks of. See, they found their strength in the Lord to preach with forthrightness and candor and openness. And notice the whole purpose for it all here. It was for the purpose of speaking the gospel of God. It was for the purpose of speaking, as he says here, God's gospel. That really needs to settle into our thinking here this morning, people of God, that the substance of preaching isn't a self-help topic. The substance and material of preaching is not user-friendly truths. The substance of preaching is the very message which God has given His church, which is found in the Word of God. And that message, which is the Lord, is honored in one way of preaching. Boldness, honesty, candor, truth, forthrightness. It brings us into a point of application here. As we think about all of this, I come back to a statement of Calvin because it just simply reinforces what we've already said about why this is even coming up and why you should have any interest and why you shouldn't be stretching and yawning and disinterested in this message. Because the whole point about recalling the manner of his preaching is for this, as Calvin said, to confirm them in faith. He goes out of his way to connect with them and their own experience and what they remember and recollect and recall because they were very much a part of it. And he said, you yourselves know this. And then he very directly and consciously appeals to a set of facts that they know and in that set of facts was the faithfulness of his preaching in the particular manner and style and substance of it. And what that tells us, first of all, by way of application, is that the manner and style of preaching isn't for us to decide upon. It's by God's appointment. We don't get to make it up. Our age thinks that we're so creative and so cool because of it. Maybe we are. But just because we can be creative doesn't mean it's necessarily good or useful or approved of by God. The Apostle Paul was in an age of creative speakers. Indeed, it is called the great age of orators. In the study of the history of rhetoric, you always start out with the Greco-Roman period because it is known to be that era in which rhetoric and the art of public speaking and persuasive speeches was given its origin and dominated a culture. Apostle was aware of that. If you read the language that he uses and the terms he uses, it's very obvious he knows exactly what was up, and he's aware of the canons of ancient rhetoric. And here's what he says about that. 1 Corinthians 2.4 My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. Notice he rejects emphatically any models which distracted from the pure manner of preaching which he was taught by Christ. It wasn't with enticing words of wisdom. It wasn't with comic relief, in other words. 
It wasn't with that great canon of modern preaching. Make sure you're likable. In fact, Paul marvels at many points in his writings about how people listen to him because they can't figure it out. He says to the Galatians one time, uh, you, vi- you received me as an angel of God. And it was odd because I was seizuring and I looked funny and I talked weird to you. Because he knew that the basis for their receiving the message wasn't in him. It was in the Word of God and the application of the Spirit. And that's why that particular statement in 1 Corinthians 2.4 is finished off within demonstration of the Spirit and in power. His model was Holy Spirit driven. Why? Why does any of this matter? Is it all just a bunch of theory and arguing this morning about arcane abstractions. No. Because it's just as we pointed out to you as we connected the ideas, this is what the Apostle appeals to to say. We know your election by God because the way the Word was brought to you was true. The message that was brought to you was true. Remember I told you before that there were those who try to discourage the Thessalonians and to undermine their faith by saying what happened to them was nothing more than a massive experiment in psychological manipulation. The Apostle Paul here appeals specifically to the manner, style, and substance of his preaching so that he could confirm them in faith and say, you have every right to be entitled to assurance of your salvation and to sense confirmation in your faith because we didn't make it about us. We didn't appeal to our wonderful personalities or our great rhetorical abilities or to our wonderful keen wit and insight and comic abilities. We spoke to you the word in boldness. Inside, the apostle may have known fear and trembling because it seemed to him that every time he preached the word of God forthrightly and sincerely and honestly, rocks were flying at him. But he says we preached in boldness and candor and truth and forthrightness because we know that's the what God honors. We know that's the way God works. We know this is how God builds His church. We know this is how God calls forth His people to salvation's mercies. And we cared more about that than anything else. So he speaks of his boldness here. And the second thing that he speaks of is his pure motives. I think it's um, uh, of some interest that uh, what the Apostle does here in, in well, three uh, separate texts is, is really set forth an, an entire string of false motives for preaching. And so we're going to walk through those texts one by one just to show you what the Apostle Paul emphatically says did not motivate him when he preached to them so that they could be persuaded themselves. And we begin in verse 3, and we know that he's speaking of his preaching here because he says our exhortation, our exhortation. That that is a clear reference for his preaching. It is a term that is used in the New Testament to speak of the preaching of the Word. He's already spoken of it not being in vain. He brings it up here, and he says our preaching, our exhortation. And the first thing that he says he rejects is that his exhortation didn't come from error. In other words, he didn't intentionally draw from resources which he knew to be erroneous, yet interesting. See, this was a typical uh, tool in the hands of ancient uh, uh, rhetors and, and the people who made their money off of, uh, of speaking in the public. They didn't care what they said, whether it was true, just whether it was interesting. He says, our... Exhortation didn't come from error. He said it didn't come from impurity. And this word can go a bunch of different ways. But basically he says it wasn't corrupt. The next word he uses here in verse 3 is perhaps the most colorful because it's deceit. Deceit. 
Guess what this word was used of? Bait for fishing. When you hear this, think think about putting a worm on your hook and going down to the lake and fishing for some trout. It It was a way to attract the fish to come and bite the hook. It was intentional audience manipulation here that he says they rejected. We didn't come to you and speak things to you that were bait and switch. That that's the that's the contemporary model. To take all these hard truths and get rid of them and just connect with practical things that you can find from the Bible. And, and by the way, when you're doing, make sure it's nice and funny. Eventually, if they hang around, we can tell them the hard stuff later in a back room somewhere. That is called bait and switch. Paul says, we didn't do that. We didn't preach to you out of error, impurity, or deceit. Drop down to verse 5, you see another reference. We never came with flattering speech. This is basically what you think it is. The audience is king. If you're making your money off of them following you and contributing to you, well, you probably ought to make sure you're saying things to them that they find agreement with. Ours is an age that knows a lot about that, doesn't it? We are in such a hostile environment anymore that only a certain perspective is received as okay in public communication, right? I was watching a video clip of, of an actor, a well-known actor, who was being uh, put on the grill at some sort of media event because he was defending a friend of his, a fellow actor, who was being shredded with the criticisms of political correctness. And he dared to stand up and defend his friend And there was like a feeding frenzy. You could hear the crowd booing and hissing and yelling and calling him a bigot. You know what flatterers do? They say, I, I, I didn't know this was so offensive. Maybe I can see it from your perspective now, right? See, they begin to shape and tailor the message to the appetites of those who are listening because they want to make sure they're likable. They want to make sure their message finds approval with those who are listening. And the apostles, says he emphatically rejected that. He said, we never came with flattering speech. He also says, um, nor with the pretext of greed, that is a cloak, camouflage, if you will, uh, saying that his real reason for speaking unto them was so that uh, he could uh, make sure he made a good living when he was done. Well, those are false motives rejected. Uh, you see one last false motive here in verse 6. We didn't seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. In other words, he said, we came as the heralds of the Lord Jesus Christ. We came serving and representing the great King of kings and Lord of lords. And we deserved a particular reception. But we didn't seek it. We didn't seek glory. Because as is clearly implied here, he was seeking glory for God. All of this is so interesting to us as the Apostle just goes down the line almost point by point, um, problem area by problem area to make sure he's removing from their thinking anything which uh, could have uh, mischaracterized his message. And he says, you remember all this. And, And what's so interesting to us is the whole way that he refers to these things so emphatically is that he doesn't have a shred of doubt or concern that anybody is going to object to what he's saying. He knows that everyone there will be able to nod in agreement when he said those things. So how could that be? How could it be that he could be persuaded and assured that they knew his motives weren't like that? 
Well, the answer is what you read in verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we, we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. You see here, what the apostle does is make it very clear by way of contrast with verse 3, where he listed off that whole series of, of errors and false motives and corrupt motives that he rejected, error and purity and deceit. Then you have that very strong but, that strong conjunction contrast here in verse 5. But he says, we did it a different way. We came to you with motives that were right because we had been approved by God. This is a very vivid term. It's one of those words that you would use to to verify whether um, a metal, a precious metal like gold or silver was authentic and genuine rather than fool's gold. Speaks of a, of a testing to verify the truth or of something. And, and he says here, we have been examined by God. And the purpose of it all, he says, so that we could be entrusted with the gospel. You see, the reason for the divine testing and the divine certification and authentication was that God wanted to send messengers who would go with the right aims and motives and desires, who were preaching for the right reasons, which was the glory of God in Christ. We did it so that we could be entrusted with the gospel. And then he says there's this ongoing, um, there's even this ongoing testing, as you can see at the end of verse 4. God who examines the heart. The Apostle Paul seemed to be gripped with a conscious awareness that God was his audience. The reason why he could so emphatically tell them that his motives were pure and believe that they knew he was telling the truth is because he conducted himself as one who knew that his ultimate audience wasn't the people who were listening in the pews, but his ultimate audience was the Lord who is able to search the heart. What an amazing sense of awareness. It echoes that great Reformation theme of quorum deo, that our whole life is like an open book before God, and that all that we do unfolds before the very face of God. He says that was Him. That was Him. He, he preached and He conducted Himself as a minister of the Word, knowing that God was testing and evaluating and seeing and whether He could fool a person, He knew He could never fool God. So He didn't even bother but notice that we descend into what it may be the, the inner depths of motive here in verse 4 as he gives us the reason for why he preached as he did. He said, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God. You see why he was free of these false motives of error and purity and deception and flattering speech and greed and the praise of men and the whole laundry list of reasons why people are falsely motivated and are driven by corrupt motivation. All of it is grounded in the desire to be men-pleasers. It's a terrible condition which touches all people. We seek to be men-pleasers. The Apostle says here that his heart was tuned in a different direction. It was to please God. Because he discerned and knew that God was the searcher of his heart. He did not want to misrepresent God's gospel or God's truth. And so with all of the forthrightness and boldness and sincerity he could muster by the grace of God, he preached with boldness, aiming to please God to not distort his message. John Calvin, um, when he died, uh, it took about two weeks lying on a deathbed, drifting in and out of consciousness at points, uttering words that were written down. One of the last words taken down by the stenographer next to his bed 
was this. I've never knowingly, I've never knowingly corrupted a single text of Scripture. Quite a remarkable statement for a man who wrote commentaries or preached on or wrote theological articles on almost every single book of the Bible. And never knowingly. How can someone say that before they go to meet their maker in death? It's because he was oriented towards the Lord. It was because his heart's desire was to please God and not men. His aim was the glory of God. His concern wasn't to attract a crowd or a devout set of followers or to make himself look more powerful and important because lots of people were listening to him. His audience was of one. The Lord. This was the apostles' burden. If we think about this for our application, I I begin with a point that may feel like it's a little unrelated to this whole idea of the manner and style and substance of Paul's preaching, but but I think it goes, I think it fits well, because I think what the Apostle Paul has done here, as he's unveiled the depths of his heart and the reasons why he did what he did, and why it was unwavering, and why it didn't change, and why it formed a matter of a body of public facts and a record that he could appeal to to others who were watching it is because he was so consistent in it. He knew what was driving him. And so his labors, his service to the Lord was characterized by integrity. And it seems to me as we think about the application of Paul's method of preaching, first of all, just in a general sense, just in a principial fashion, it would seem to me that this is something that we can quite legitimately take from Paul's exposition of the manner and style of his preaching is that in his deepest heart motives, this man and the way he served God was characterized by integrity. And that integrity was ensured and kept in check by and motivated by this. He knew that God was the searcher of his heart. People of God, is that how you conduct yourself? Is this how you think as you go to serve the Lord, as you live your life? Are you doing it aware that it's all quorum deo? Are you living in such a way that you know you are serving the great Lord of all, who is the searcher of heart, who is the witness to all that you do? That's the challenge for us, every believer ought to seek to be able to say with Paul, I've been approved by God, I've been tested. Every believer ought to be able to defend themselves against false and corrupt motives by appealing to the fact that they know God is the searcher of their hearts and they're not seeking to misrepresent Him. Every believer ought to be able to say, I'm seeking to please God and not myself or men. This is the standard. We fall short of it, yes. But it doesn't mean it's not the model we aim at. We ask God to forgive us because we're not quite there, but we still aim at it. That should be what we think. God is the searcher of the heart. He is worthy of our aim to please and to glorify and not ourselves or others. His model of ministry was characterized by integrity because God was his witness. And everything. But as we land now closer to our text and its real import this morning, I think that uh, we should be grateful here as we see the Apostle unfold for us key elements of the model of his ministry here. Boldness and purity. And the reason for it all. The reason for it all. Was because on account of that consistency... He was able to appeal to it and say to those whose hearts were unsettled, 
who knew that they loved Jesus Christ and yet because people and circumstances and providences and all kinds of things were um, eroding that sense of confidence and assurance and, and peaceful rest in Christ. He said, brethren, you can find a rock to stand on for your faith. That is the true and faithful preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul ties the assurance of their salvation to the very model of ministry because he knew this was God appointed and God had appointed it in such a way that when it is followed, true believers may have the assurance of knowing they've been saved not by a man, but by Jesus Christ. We don't deviate from the model because the model is Christ's. He's the Savior. And He has determined to consecrate the mouth of the minister to bring the Word in just the way He appointed so that the Gospel of God is what gets through and saves. And so, this morning, people of God... I hope and pray that you lay hold of the grounds of assurance, the true preaching of the gospel, and know its relevance, because when it's done that way, it's Jesus Christ speaking to you in grace. We thank the Lord this morning for the Apostles' model of faithfulness. It's not irrelevant. It's a foundation and a firm one for our faith. Father, this morning we thank you for uh, an old record. It's just an old story of what the apostle did. It's repeated to witnesses who were first-hand observers of it all and who need to be refreshed in it because there were spiritual principles at work that were for their good, for their grace, for their confirmation, for their enjoying of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that the message as it, as it lands upon our hearts and minds this morning will be unto that same end that we will know the enjoyment of Jesus Christ and His grace. That there will be nothing to us that's more precious or valuable, more important, more encouraging, more hope-filled than to know that Jesus Christ is our Savior who's redeemed and purchased us body and soul to be his own. May each have that great and profound insurance this morning as they look unto the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.